Are you dreaming about travelling again? I bet you are. So give yourself a break and listen to my brand new travel podcast. It's made for people like you, by people like you. And in these podcasts, there will be interviews with different types of travellers and the strange characters that I've met on the road. With stories and anecdotes from the last 32 years of my continuous backpacking and working around the world. Also, there'll be cynical destination descriptions and the occasional travel tip to smooth your journey. And for all the squeamish listeners out there, I just want to say that no studio was used or abused in the making of these podcasts or any of the recordings. So please check it out, and I hope you like it. Oh, and by the way, my name's Alan. This week, I have a very unique guest, to say the least. Eric Anderson. You'd think he'd be Scandinavian with a name like that, but no. He's the rarest breed, he's American. I will say no more. Eric and I are sitting on top of a mountain overlooking the town of Viana do Costello. Now that's not the correct pronunciation, but I'm sure he'll tell me now exactly how to pronounce it. Well, it's good to see you here in Viana do Castello, my <laughs> my English friend, and uh, we're here on top of this uh, mountain that overlooks the town, and it's a glorious sunny day, and we can see the River Lima and the Atlantic Ocean, the beaches. It's pretty spectacular. And how would you describe yourself as a traveller in general? You know, as a as a type. I mean, a lot of people they'll do uh, planes, taxis, and hotels. I tend to do the complete opposite. What's your style of travel? Well, you know, I've been traveling since I was very young. It's something that comes from inside me. It's uh, almost like a compulsion. I just had to get up and go uh, ever since I was quite young. I guess I could tell about walking away from school when I was when I was a child and being picked up by the police and hiking and going for long, long walks and camping in the woods. But I really got started uh, hitchhiking when I was a teenager. And uh, so I was 15. I went down, I hitchhiked down to Miami saw a friend and he was very surprised that I just showed up at his family's house. Did he know you were coming? He did, but I think, but you know. He was surprised that you got there. He was surprised because he wasn't, he was more of a friend of a friend. So this was kind of like, surprise, (laughs) run away. But I hitchhiked back. Everything worked out well. I didn't run into any trouble. That's all right. If you build up a confidence about doing something, that it's no big deal. And a lot of young people today, I think, struggle with that. They're scared to get out there in the first place and give it a go but once they do they're at it they can't they get the bug for traveling and then they can't stop that's true we always have to push ourselves push our limits a little bit just to just to see what we're capable of well i met a lot of people not all young a lot of them quite old who were doing the camino the santiago for the first time but they were concerned about whether the weather was going to be good or whether the hostels will be open or the albergues um, they didn't know how far they're going to walk all day instead of just getting there and doing it and carrying the consequences with them they were over, over planning, over. Sure, sure. Uh, I've seen that too. I know what yeah. it And it, 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 I, for me, it kills the adventure. When we travel, we we try not to get into any trouble or or try to have bad experiences. But sometimes those bad experiences actually teach us a lot. Can you remember any of the bad, really bad experiences you've had out there while you've been traveling? Sure, I mean, that's a good question. I did a lot of hitchhiking, which is by its nature very dangerous. I didn't understand when I was young how dangerous that is. I was very lucky and did not 
run into trouble when I was hitchhiking, but I did run into trouble one time. I was in, I happened to be in Haiti in 1987. It was just after a coup. And I had my little backpack on and I was hiking through the interior there, these little Were towns. Were you on your own? I was on my own. And I, you know, I can speak a little French, but not too much. And I'm two meters tall and had long, long hair. <laughs> and I'm as white as a, as a dish of vanilla ice cream. So it wasn't too easy to try to, to melt into the crowd in Haiti. Obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got a little too confident. And it's easy when you're young to think that nothing bad can happen because you've been yeah. good all along. It's like, yeah. it's like the gambler's fallacy. Oh, nothing bad's happened so far. Nothing bad can happen. Well, I was in a, in a small village in rural Haiti, and I had ordered up a little plate of food, and all the little kids were, were staring at me and watching me put the food in my mouth, and I was just having a wonderful time thinking about what a great adventure it was when suddenly two soldiers burst in and pointed their rifles right at my torso, right at my liver, and demanded my identification. I dropped my plate, I dropped my fork, and the kids scattered, and it was an ugly scene because I had been told, these soldiers in the interior will kill you for a dollar, and that's what I had expected. I expected to be killed at that moment. But I managed to pull out my passport because they asked for identification. Next to my passport was about $1,000 American that I didn't like them seeing. Which you, do, you wouldn't make that mistake today? No, I wouldn't. I, I would keep everything separate and keep... Or you just pay them and keep your passport in your pocket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wasn't prepared. I was not prepared yes. and I was being careless. No, that's fine. That, that, that's how you learn. And as long as you, and you got away with it, what was, the, what was the outcome? Well, that's how we learn unless we're killed in the, in the act in of the learning. Process, because yeah. they took my passport and they wrote down my numbers on a sheet of paper and, and they left. So I finished my meal and I walked outside and they were waiting for me. It was dark. There wasn't even a star in the sky. It was, it was pitch black. And they pointed the rifles at me and they said, uh, okay, I forget exactly what they said. Where are you going to sleep tonight? I, I knew I, that I was being shaken down for the money. Yeah. And even if I gave them the money, they might still kill me. Yes. So I had to brazen it out. I, I don't know where this well, came from. Well, they'd have to kill you because they, you could identify them. Yeah, exactly. I'd say there was that little town and these two soldiers. I decided to, to double down. I said, I, I'm going to go sleep on the beach tonight. And I had my hands in the air because they were pointing their guns right at me. And I turned my back on them, and I expected to be hit with a spray of gunfire, but I walked away from them. Then I broke into a run, and I hauled ass. They didn't, they didn't fire, <laughs> but I ran into the woods. It was, again, it was pitch black. It was muddy because we'd had a terrible tropical storm and everything, and, and I was scrambling through the mud and through the forest, and hands reached out of the darkness to pull me along because the villagers had seen what was going on, and, and I was escaping for my life, you know, and I, I hid yeah, out in the woods yeah. all that night. I should have been better prepared, and really, frankly, that was too dangerous a trip to make. That well, was one. It could have really turned bad. It could have really turned bad. I had no business being out there all by myself in rural Haiti right after a military coup. Yeah, and yeah. They could have just seen you as a spy and shot you anyway. Exactly. So you know, a lot, a lot of travelers get killed. We don't hear yes, the stories no, from right. them, especially in Central America. Exactly. It's a, big, yeah, it's a, big a lot area. of people get killed. I get you get disappeared, and that's it. So and so disappeared. Well, you survived that, Rick. Uh -huh. um, give me a good experience, one that stays with you now. You know, being, being in Amazonia, I spent a lot of my adult life in, in Brazilian Amazonia, going into the interior in boats was some of the best experiences of my entire life, going deep into the interior. Some of the wildlife that you see, the, the river dolphins are, are spectacular. The giant otters that they have in Amazonia are spectacular. And the monkeys that you see, 
there are a lot of things that can kill you in Amazonia yeah, too. Yeah, but yeah. you know, people live their li entire lives in the interior, and they don't get killed. If you know what you're doing, you can. It's a. It's survive. A, you can survive. Yeah. But those were some very satisfying times in, in camping in the interior. Sometimes with other people. Sometimes alone. And fishing is a big importance on the on the Amazon. Sure it is. Uh -huh. um, did you do much fishing while? I did. You know, I, when I was young, I used to be a compulsive sport fisherman. I did all kinds of fishing. I used to think about it all the time. I used to fish all the time. When you fish for a living and you fish for food, you start losing the you start losing the appeal of uh, sport fishing. So yeah, I fished, but just for food in Amazonia, and I lost all desire for sport yeah. fishing. Yeah. It's like it would be like. To me, sport fishing would be like sport farming today. Yes, yes that's right, yeah. You, I think you told me earlier that you'd married a Brazilian girl? I did, Andrea, in 1993, on October 1st, in Manaus. In Manaus, okay. Yes, so she's you... from Belém do Pará, she's very Brazilian, she doesn't yeah. speak English. We, ha we had some wonderful years together, we're still in touch. <laughs> Every week we're sending um, nice messages back and forth. We are divorced now, but we're still, honestly, we've yeah. still become very good friends. No, that's, that's ex excellent, excellent. And all because of travel. Y yes, because I, the, because I had decided to make a stand in Brazilian Amazonia and met this wonderful girl, and she was, she is wonderful. It was my good well, no. fortune to meet that wonderful woman in yeah. Brazil. No, that's great. And why did you come out of uh, Manaus in the end? What you out of the jungle, well, out of the well, I, Amazon. Well, I moved to um, Amazonia in 1993, and I did a lot of traveling back and forth between Washington and Manaus because my, my profession, my computer programming was mostly in America. I sold my last boat, my fourth boat, in May of 2018. So I've just been out of Brazil a couple of years now. I may be back in Amazonia. I'm not sure about that yet. I'm trying to see whether I want to live in Manaus or in here in Portugal. I probably won't return to America to live, even though it's still always my home. And did you, when you were a young lad, did you go off camping and hiking in America in the, in the, in the national parks? Because some of those national parks are awesome. Yeah. You know, they're massive, you can go and get lost. The only problem you have there are bears, maybe, is the biggest problem. You know, my favorite trails when I was, when I was young is uh, the, the trails on the side of the Potomac River. They go 185 miles from Washington upstream and you can just keep on going and you can keep on hiking into the trails of uh, West Virginia into the mountains. I was always out outdoors when I was young and even as an, an adult it is a lifelong thing. And have you always been two meters tall? <laughs> ever since I ever since I reached two meters tall, I've been two meters tall. But as a young guy, were you still tall? You know, I was, when I was I think fourteen years old, I, I was two meters tall, and I I weighed maybe fifty pounds less than I weigh now. Oh well. So yeah. And were your parents tall? My parents. My father was pretty tall, okay. and uh, I was the, I'm the tallest one in the family though okay. by far. Do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I have two of each. And are they travelers? Not really. They've done some of the. I was kind of an outlier in that respect, you yeah. know, that they have good, respectable jobs, families and all that, and they have wonderful lives. Because they're happy. Yeah, so they, I was always the one that was out, kind of out on the edge, though. And, uh, you yeah. know, so every, every family's got a, uh, a red-headed stepchild. That was me <laughs> in, in our family. Yeah, okay. Tell me about your first travel experience. When you were a kid and you went out traveling or hiking, whatever you did, how did it all begin for you? Well, I certainly started hiking and, and getting away from 
uh, crowds when I was very young. But uh, fast forward a little bit, I always liked to hike outside and be outdoors. I guess I really started getting serious about it when I started uh, hitchhiking. When I was 15, I hitchhiked oh, wow. down to Florida. That's pretty young. Yeah, yeah, I was pretty young. It was a, it was a good adventure. and. Um, it was exciting, and to be out there on that road and being at truck stops and people pulling over for you, it was a big thrill. I wouldn't it's a have buzz, a, yeah, it's a hell yeah, of a it buzz. Yeah, it was a buzz. And a few years later, I hitchhiked out to the Grand Canyon, and first time I'd been out in the West and seen the formations of rocks and deserts and hitchhiking through Texas and hearing Spanish for the, yeah, really yeah. For the first time. It's, yeah. it's very romantic, especially when you're young. It's sort of like you're living the life. It was. That was. It was really exciting. It's. I can do that now, and I mean, have adventures. They're not as exciting because I kind of already seen that thing, and there are other reasons to travel now. Yeah. And who would you say was your biggest inspiration as a young traveler? You know, when I was in high school, there was a fellow who used to used to hang around the high school, and he was 15 and looked about 45, and. <laughs> He would just hang around with his friends at the high school, didn't go to school. His name was, uh, I won't say his name because still in touch with his family. He would hitchhike all over, the, all over the country. We'd be in school, he'd come back in the spring or in, he'd be gone for months and he'd tell tales of adventures out in California and Canada and down in wow. Mexico. And he was just a young guy who liked to have adventures. His parents didn't mind that he disappeared off? Well, he's kind of a backwoods family. Oh, okay. Definitely, a, think of Huck Finn, yeah. and you'll think of my friend. He was he was very much that fellow who just couldn't. He would be the last one to put on shoes in the winter, oh, wow. and the first one to take them off in the spring. Did he have long hair, short hair? Was he? Uh... He had long hair when at a time when you could get your ass kicked for having long hair, <laughs> and we and we oh, all yeah, got yeah. our asses kicked because we had long yeah. hair. Um, but he, he he even had a beard at age fifteen. He wow. Was, he was already well on his way. Yeah, yeah. And it was an inspiration because in those days, just for the thrill of it, just for the thrill of seeing other places, it was such a, a new concept to me that you could just walk out and have a great adventure like that. Okay, you're living in northern Portugal or mm -hmm. you're living in Viana do Castelo. There you go. Okay, so something like that. Okay, why here? What is it about this town and the area that turns you on? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that the, uh, the motto of this town, and it's written all over the place, is King Gostaveng, King Amafika. Whoever likes this place comes to visit. Whoever loves it comes to stay. Well, I'd paid it a visit 20 years ago. I was in Portugal with my backpack. I was young, long hair. I'm an old long hair now. <laughs> but I had my backpack and I was traveling around Spain and Portugal. Yeah. I visited a lot of wonderful places, but I liked this place the best, Viana do Castelo here in northern Portugal. So I resolved when I retired someday, I'd come back here and set myself up. Yeah, so I've yeah. been here two years now. I've never for even one minute regretted that I came not only to Portugal, not only to Europe, but to this exact town here. Location, yeah. And is it, would you have to have somewhere on the waterfront? You've got a river here, you have the sea just around that, the That's corner. important to me. You have the sea, the beaches, the river, the mountains. I think I do miss, one thing I miss about Manaus and my hometown of Washington, D.C. is having a navigable river with boats that you can just go for hundreds of hundreds of kilometers on, which you can't do on the Rio Lima. The Rio Lima is really wonderful, but it's not like a long, it's not a traveler's 
river. Oh, okay. What about, have you done canoeing and kayaking? Yes, there are, there are many good things you can do. What My coming up plans here on the River Lima is renting these small sailboats oh, and yes, scooting yeah. around. This, was, but every why. river has its best, has its best uh, aspect. And the, my home river of the Potomac uh, is one that you can travel out to the ocean from Washington. You just go right on out to the ocean. It might take you a week to get there. The Amazon, of course, you can go for hundreds of kilometers, thousands of kilometers on all sides. So that navigability for a traveler, I'm a traveler by water a lot. Yes, so that, yes. I might be able to say that's really my favorite way to get around is by my own boats, you know. Okay, but the, the world has changed due to the coronavirus. Right. And it certainly put a stop to a lot of traveling for a lot of people. Sure. How do you think the coronavirus will affect traveling in the future? Not now, but in the future. When, let's say, the, will, will, do you think it'll get back to normal again and people, if the airlines are there, because right. airlines are, are collapsing every day? Well, what's normal? I mean, uh, pandemics are normal. Here, here in this part of Portugal, you had the Black Plague come through in 1350. It killed half the population. We should get used to having things that come through. What are they, about once every hundred years or something? Well, I, I mean, there's a lot of ways to look at it, but think that the Spanish flu came through in 1918, 1919 and killed yeah. 50 million people worldwide. What I'm, what I'm saying is that, that pandemics are something that happen, you know. It's not new, is it? It's not, it's not new, new. new phenomenon. So it's a, it's a health issue, and these come, come down the pike for human beings every so often. Well, yeah, everybody has to change their behavior if they want to avoid catching an infectious disease, and that's the masks, the distancing, all that kind of stuff. I think some people will drop out. Since it makes the travel a little bit more dangerous, some people will opt to do something else besides yes, travel. Yes. Some well, people will continue lot, traveling. That's right, and a lot of people will actually start visiting the country that they're in rather than going abroad. Right, yeah, and we saw that out in the Jerez Park, that many people in oh, Portugal yes. opted to stay in Portugal this summer. And so, so paradoxically, the, the National Park was really crowded this year with Portuguese people. And it puts money back into the economy, doesn't it? It was overall, that, that aspect was good for the Portuguese economy. I think if people took the coronavirus more seriously, I think it would end quicker and then we could get back to traveling again. But Right, it kind of raises the price of traveling in a certain way if, if you have more danger. Yeah. But, you know, I think for people who travel like you and I do, which is with a backpack and the way the local people travel, which is on the trains and on the buses and, and all, those modes of transportation will not go away. Those are the yes, infrastructure. That's right. They, they've been there for years. And living in cheap places like we do where we travel, those places are not going away. What's, what's going to change is more the high-end things, you know, the yeah. airplanes. Yeah. Okay, they've suffered much more than just your everyday bread and butter kind of ground transportation. And they all run on such a tight budget yeah, so and, and profit margin that right. it's very quick to go under. I think you'll see more changes in the upper end of the, of the travel uh, lifestyle than down, <laughs> down on our end. What other countries have you visited around the world? Well, I've spent the most time by far in Latin America, especially Brazil. But when I was first starting to travel back in the early 80s, I uh, went to Mexico and down to Guatemala and Belize. I had a long adventure in Syria and in Turkey, in Egypt. Ended up doing a, a trip on the Nile River from uh, Aswan to Luxor. Climbed up the pyramids. You could do it back in those days. You and had to be kind of tricky. We, how old would you have been at those times? How I was when we 
when we went to Syria, I was uh, maybe 25 or oh, so. Okay, okay. Uh-huh. What is it about traveling that grabs you? What's, what gives it the passion for you? Well, a lot of human beings want to have a new experience. I certainly wanted to have a new experience. I wanted to learn. I wanted to push my limits. To test myself was part of it, certainly. Just to see what was on the other side. I think it's okay. curiosity yeah, yeah. is a yeah. big part of it. What's the best way you like to travel? The best mode of travel? Yeah, for best. me, <laughs> well, I'm kind of old school. I used to love to hitchhike a lot because you always get to meet. I mean, by definition, you're meeting the local people on the roads and all. And uh, I hitchhiked around America a lot. And that was good, but it's dangerous too. You know, in the late 70s, when I was hitchhiking from Washington, D.C., down to Florida, and from Washington, D.C., over to the Grand Canyon in Arizona, everything went fine for me. But you had your serial killers were stacking up hitchhikers like firewood in the basement at the time. You had your John Wayne Gacy's and your Ted Bundy's. And yeah, there were, there were a whole lot of them. And fortunately, I never met them. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, and you, did you have any bad experiences hitchhiking at that time? Really nothing thing that would stand out as okay. traumatic. Sometimes no, I was good. inconvenienced, but that's all it was. That's so amazing because there was some bad stuff went down. Where would you say your favorite place is in, not the best place you've ever visited, but your favorite sort of area to travel? Would you say that was South America? Yes, yeah, so South America. When I was very young, I started studying Spanish on my own I, with the plan of going to Latin America sometime. I didn't plan on going to Brazil when I was started studying Spanish, but... I ended up in Brazil. I ended up in the city of Manaus in the Brazilian Amazon. I ended up staying there for many years. Actually, I married a girl and bought boats and traveled in the interior of Amazonia. That's the amazing thing about the Amazon. Everything's on the river. That's right. You've been there. You've traveled on the boats. It's people are using boats like we use cars. Exactly. And fishing is a big thing. There's plenty of wildlife there as well. Did you see any really fantastic wildlife? Well, yes. I I always had boats. I I sold my, my fourth boat in uh, 2018 and came to Portugal but yes out on the river you often see the dolphins the pink dolphins which are f- spectacular and they're yes. fairly common too it's not that hard to see them well I, I, I must I must admit that I stood on many of the boat uh, searching the river to try and find one and my first sighting was actually at night uh-huh. um, but I won't go into that story because that is a story I'm going to put on the podcast um, but yeah so and and there's lots of um, legends or tales about these pink dolphins attacking people, you know, not not attacking them on land and stuff. So something would have happened where um, this is being told to me by a man on the bridge of a ship uh, going down the Amazon that, that a girl was raped and she put it down to the dolphin. That's very true. It's, it's interesting that you bring that up because... The legends of the pink dolphin, the Botucor de Rosa, it's called in Portuguese, is very famous on the banks of the river Amazon. The communities there, if ever there's a rape or a sudden pregnancy that can, no one can identify, they blame it on the dolphin who becomes, who turns into a man. Because is that because they're pink and they look like humans or they, they the right color? Or uh, that's a good question. There's there's a lot of material that the re, the listener can can find on the internet if they if they do a search for it. The overall idea is that during a festival, 
the dolphin will come out of the river and be and take on human form, seduce <laughs> the young girls, and make them pregnant, and return to the river. Um, it's like, all over Amazonia. But it sounds like thing. a man's story, doesn't it? A man's tale. Yeah, yeah, we're true. There's, there are a lot of legends about different kinds of creatures in Amazonia. We can yeah. talk about that for days. You do a lot of hiking now, and you're in northern Portugal. So would you say that your your love of Portugal and hiking go together? There's enough... Uh, trails here and enough places to hike they do all of portugal all of portugal is hikeable there are trails everywhere and they go back thousands of years people have always gotten around through the mountains and 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 rivers and beaches on foot here in portugal so you can hike everywhere really i like to say if, if you can't get there on foot in portugal it's because it's either on fire or underwater the trails in this area are especially good and you can hike along the beach up in the mountains, up the river. It's just spectacular, it really is. Now, Portugal's a small country. This isn't like going into the Himalayas or the Andes. <clears throat> but for your casual hiker and your, a person who likes to go out for a few days at a time, it's really just very nice. It's very yeah, nice. Yeah, that's, that's good. And, and that's the, weather, we the weather's fairly good. I mean, it's only now in October, November, that I think you were saying it rains a lot. True. Here in northern Portugal, it's not the same as down in the south. You think of the beaches and all in the south of Portugal. This part, this weather is more like you'd find in Ireland or okay. in the UK during, during the this winter, time of year. During the months. winter, we have a, yeah. a glorious sunny day that we're, we're in the sun right now. Yeah, but it rained yesterday, and that's pretty typical for uh, October, November here in northern Portugal. Again, you've you've travelled widely. Do you see yourself as an American traveller, or do you see yourself as a traveller? As a traveller, frankly, uh, the less. I'm identified as an American. It's it works yeah. out better, you know. I I love my country and my friends and family back there, but uh, Americans attract attention and my, my blue passport. Yeah. Uh, people associate it with a lot of things that they don't like about America. Yes, and it it makes it difficult in some countries. Portugal is no problem. Some countries it's more difficult if they, if if they know that you're American. But the other, the other good thing is that when you come into Europe. A lot of Europeans can't tell the difference between an English and American Australian accent. Yeah, they do, they just put us all into one group that we're English speakers. True. And it's true. possible that you could be, you could have been English as much as American to them. Um, so I think yeah, it's only your passport that would give it away. Do you do planning or do you you go off just blindly or how how? Well, I mean, I, I've really I've done both really. But I... I do tend to plan. I don't plan where I'm going to be, and I, I, I make room for wandering around. I like to be in Spanish and Portuguese-speaking places because I have some uh, domination of those two languages. Are you comfortable, though, being in a place where you don't speak any of the language? Not as comfortable. To me, it's... As China it's, or... I think I, I've never been to Asia, or so... Vietnam or somewhere. I think I would like to visit those places, but it would be harder to mix with the local people. You know, I plan to be in a place. I came here to Portugal. The first thing I did was rent an apartment. You know, I've been in the same okay. apartment two years. And you could say, yeah, I'm a traveler, but I'm becoming kind of a resident, too. <laughs> um, You're using it as a base, then, to go out. Well, that's true, too. I mean, I mean, it's, it is like a base camp here. It's like a, it's like a paw print here in Europe. And then from here, I'm able to take my backpack and go out to, like, the Jerez National Park, where we met back in August. Yeah. Travel around in Europe. I'm hoping that we'll be able to to walk all the trails. I'm looking forward to walking across Spain and across France and into Italy. Have you ever done the Camino de Santiago? I have not done that. We've got tents, hammocks, hostels, 
hotels, mm-hmm. you know, the whole shooting match. What's your what's your preference there? You know, I think some of my best camping experiences have been just having my hammock outdoors oh, yeah. and sleeping in that. And I do that a lot, and that's what I was doing out in the Jerez. You had your hammock out there in yeah, the Jerez Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, what is it for you then that the hammock brings? To you the- know what's so sweet is that, you know, if you're in a tent, you're basically in a sock, you know. <laughs> there are no windows. It's it's very confining. But if it's a nice night, you hang that hammock outside, and you've got your birds, you've got the stars, and when you wake up in the morning, that sun hits you in the face. It's just a joy. There is that. If it's warm, but when it's cold, that's freezing. You can freeze your bum off sure you can. Um, in a hammock. Again, you carry a tent and a hammock, so right. you've got the choice. So if the, it's raining... The, ham- the, the tent is more of the base camp. If the weather's going to be good and I can count on it, I'll take my small pack, walk away from my tent, go way into the inside, and do some stealth camping, you know, guerrilla camping, yeah, places yeah, where you're yeah, not yeah, supposed yeah. to, but well, you hide out. Stealth camping is the, is the way to go, yeah. I think. Yeah, I do it here in Vienna. I'm not supposed to, but I, I'll march out into the swamps here, and there are a couple stands of trees that are hidden away, and just hang the hammock, spend the night out there. Awesome. It's wonderful. Yeah, that's awesome. Again, you're right, early morning bird call or owls at night, uh-huh. the odd splash of a fish in the dark. Right. It is, it is magical, I must admit. It is it magical. Really is. And then again, if you've got the moon and it's a decent moon for the night and there's no clouds, there's plenty of stars. Okay, we'll wrap it there. And thank you for the interview, Eric. Um, Thanks, Alan. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Pleasure's um, all mine. On such a lovely day. Well, that's all for this week, folks. And please remember, The same road can be travelled a thousand different ways, so get out there and make it your own. Until next week.